0: have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, For those of you that maybe uh, you're visiting today, we're in the book of Second Corinthians and uh, our church now where we're at is, you know, really at a place where, uh, you know, we've really started to develop uh, the ministries of our church. God this year has just given us some tremendous opportunities and it's been a process that we've started really from uh we when we started the church and we have just been working through that process and now you know it's all coming together and so our goal for this next year is to take uh, a group of people out of this church that want to be part of it and develop a very intense uh ministry where we can just about work with any person's problems that have issues training ourselves to get us to the point where no matter what we find in somebody's life, we have the ability through the Word of God to be able to deal with it. And um, so uh, what we're doing is we're coming through four or five weeks of coming through the book of Second Corinthians, and then I'm going back and giving them, like I did last week, the principles that they need to know. They're putting them in their Bible and working with them, and toward the end of this year, <clears throat> or maybe first of next year, uh, they'll sit down and they'll, they'll take a, a very extreme test, uh, to pass uh, that criteria so they are be ready to get into the next level, which is to help people. So <clears throat> that's what we're doing here. And uh, you already have last week the first 30 principles that you'll need to help you in developing uh, your skills in dealing with your own life first and then with the lives of others. I told you that when we came to uh, the book of First Corinthians that really the first two chapters are basically The baseline definitive chapter is what the book is all about. Chapter 1 really defines (coughs) for you and for me what the ministry is. You would be surprised that the people, saved people who go to church and do not understand what true biblical ministry is. Chapter 1 defines that for us. We have that definition now. And then chapter 2, and this is where we're at today. Uh, We certainly won't get through it today. But when we entered into chapter 2, I told you where chapter 1 defines what the ministry is, Chapter 2 defines what the minister should be. And now we're looking at our own personal lives here. These are two key chapters in this book that really help put everything into perspective. And I told you that the, uh, the, uh, the, the definition of the ministry in chapter 1 is, is going through what your people go through with. Suffering with them. And the ministry by definition of 2 uh, Corinthians is suffering. But the book of second, chapter 2 in Second Corinthians, that deals with the number one quality that we're to have as ministers, Christians. And that is the forgiving spirit. Being able to forgive others who hurt you or do things to you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's certainly no place in the ministry in dealing with people's lies without the ability to forgive and forget. And I told you the greatest character quality of God that makes us love Him so much and endears us to Him is the fact that God not only forgives our sin, but He forgets our sin and puts us into a relationship with Him. And I want to talk to you today about some other key things that will help you get past those emotions in your life, the things in your heart that keep us from moving forward. You know, I I told you one of the principles is the fact that we are always to examine ourselves. Examining ourselves is a great reality check. Many times we spend too much time examining the lives of others <laughs> instead of examining our own life. But examining yourself is so key. It's key because in our lives, in dealing with the lives of other people, you always got to have the right perspective. You always got to be seen in any given situation. You always have a, a great benefit and an asset to you when you can look at things and see the problem not as it appears, but as it really is. That is so vital. And you'll learn to do that in time. I'm going to teach you over the course of the next couple of months or six, seven, eight months, and then throughout our intense study when we get into next year about concepts in the Bible. Uh, there's some incredible concepts in the Bible that... They're found in stories. They're found in books of the Bible. And when you lift up these concepts, you can apply them to a number of different things in your own life in dealing with people. One of those is what I call the high tower concept. In the Bible, you're going to find a concept called the Tower of David. David makes reference to it. David's high tower was always God. And when we take that concept and use it in our own life first and then use it in the dealing in the lives of others, it becomes very clear what it means. David uh, always looked to God for any situation that he was in. And because of that, he, got, he relied on God, who can see above the circumstances that we see, the high tower concept. You know, coming back now in the movie theaters, or the great, uh, you know, everybody, all you new kids think it's new, the 3D, 3D movies, you know, where you put the glasses on. I got news for you. I saw the first 3D movie in 1956, uh, that's when they came out. They haven't been out for years and years and years, and now they're making a comeback. And I remember it just as I, only the cardboard glasses back then, it was much more primitive. But the first 3D movie that ever came out was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I remember going and see that with my mother, and, uh, and she, had, she was big on those kind of movies. And I remember one time she took us to see, and this is still on many times, The House on the Haunted Hill with Vincent Price. I was nine years old, and my mother took me to that to see that. I was so scared when I came out. When that old lady jumps out and scared, I pinched my eyes so hard. When I came out, I had broken the blood vessels in my eyes. It looked like I, I was, I, you know, somebody had punched me in the face. But I I remember the first 3D movie was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. 3D gives you the ability that if you don't just watch it, the bird flies towards you and it's just nothing. If you have 3D, when somebody jumps out, it looks like it jumps right in your seat with you, see? In other words, in life, most of the times, God's people see things one-dimensional. One-dimensional is just how it looks. Three-dimensional gives you the ability to see not how it appears, but how it really is. And God, who has the ability to look over the obstacles in life, God sees higher than we do. God understands things to a greater degree than we do. There's never a time with God that in any given situation, he does not understand the full impact of what's going on. Hence, for you to have that ability, you have to get into a high tower. And that high tower is simply God sees over the obstacles of life. And when you and I begin to use his principles of the Word of God, it gives us the same benefit. We begin to see things from a three-dimensional aspect. And we begin to see things not how they appear, but how they really are. And you know, forming an attitude of forgiveness, that's what we want to talk about today. That's very key and crucial in every aspect. Handling issues and learning to forgive others in them. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but what we all need to do is put forgiveness in a perspective. We hear all the definitions and you hear people preach and pastors preach on forgiveness all the time. I'm going to give you today the absolute bottom line, fundamental key doctrine that needs to be behind our ability to forgive. And when we're finished today... You're going to go out of here, if you're paying attention, a little smarter, a little richer, and a little more in tune with where God wants you to be, and what we're going to try to do is form that attitude uh, of forgiveness. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you talk about forgiving people and putting forgiveness in a, in a perspective, there's really three things that we always had a guard in our life about getting, getting uh, uh, an attitude toward people. And it can happen to all of us. If you don't guard these things and put these three things into your life and become aware of these and have the perspective on these, you know, it'll, it, you'll fall right into that trap where you start to uh, get to the part in your life where you don't have the ability to forgive. And when you understand these three things, it, it kind of sets the basis for why you should not hold grudges against people. You know, sometimes people, will, uh, sometimes people will hurt us, and that's what happens. It really, somebody says something to us, somebody does something to us, somebody, you know, says something about us or whatever, or somebody hurts us in some way. And when you stop to look at these three aspects I'm about to give you, it begins to form the basis of why you and I should never be in a position where we can't forgive somebody. It forms the basis of this great doctrine I'm going to talk to you about today that shows you why you and I ought to have in our lives the greatest single character quality of God, and that is His ability to forgive. And I'm I'm going to talk to you about that. You know, sometimes people will hurt us simply because we allowed it to happen. We want to blame other people for doing something to us when the truth of the matter is we let it happen. Sometimes we put ourselves into situations that we should have never been in. And when we get into those situations because we made a bad choice, we actually think that everybody is going to treat us right and fine, and then when somebody doesn't, then we get upset and hold a grudge or get angry or won't forgive them because you hurt me. Well, the only reason they hurt you is because you put yourself into a situation to get hurt. You're supposed to be... Smarter than the problem. You're supposed to use that perception of understanding. I've told you how many times. When it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. I've seen marriages go down the tubes. And great bitterness between husbands and wives in situations like that. And I know there's a lot of personal things come in. But you know what? You ought to stop and ask yourself, I should have never got into this marriage to begin with. Getting into something that has no chance uh, is is your choice. And then getting bitter or mad or angry or holding a grudge because this person treated me bad when this person you should have known before you got into it didn't know how to treat you any other way but bad. It's just the way it works in life, being smarter than the problem. I've seen relationships where people got together in relationships and it didn't work out. And they get, you know, they get a, you get an attitude with each other, and they blast each other, and they have all kinds of problems, and they hold grudges against each other. When you go back and fundamentally look how that thing started, it goes back to that great principle. What do you expect? When it starts wrong, it ends wrong. You can't blame somebody else for saying something nasty about you when you should have never put yourself in that position to begin with. That's what happens in many, many cases. There's a great principle in the Bible called the Samson principle. Samson is a great study. Though we're not going to get into it all today, uh, I want to show you how this situation works. Now, Samson is found in the book of Judges. And Samson is is an, an incredible guy to study. You're going to find that God actually put people in the Bible whose stories and their life unfold and we can actually lift those stories out and take those principles and say, do you see how he got in that problem? This is how I got into my problem. Oh, Samson's a great case. Samson's a picture of the child of God who his greatest character quality is selfishness. That's his greatest character quality. Everything about his life is about him. You go through his life story, his He, 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 it's all about him. He wants the first words out of his mouth, I saw a woman. His whole life is built around getting what he wanted in life at the expense of everybody else. His mom, his, his father-in-law and his one wife get killed. Didn't bother Samson at all. Samson is so selfish. It's all about him from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. It's simply all about what he wants and he's a great picture for you and for me to see how he got into the problems he got into. I call it the Samson Principle. Now, when Samson was born, he became a Nazarite. The Nazarite was a vow you took. Don't confuse with many people think that Jesus was of Nazareth. He was a Nazarite. So that means he was, he was like, he was like uh, Samson. Uh, he was from Nazareth. But he wasn't a Nazarite in the sense that Samson was. In the Old Testament, a person would take what was called a Nazarite vow. That means that you were going to give your life to God and you were going to give, uh, God was going to give you the power to get that done. But you had to give up some things. You could not do uh, some certain things. One of the things you couldn't do is you couldn't cut your hair. Now let me show you how this works. Samson couldn't cut his hair. He had long hair. And if you study the Bible, you'll find that the hair was really the secret to his strength, wasn't it? Then you'll go through there, you'll find that when he did his hair, somebody braided it for him, and they did it in how many locks? Seven Seven locks. You know why? Because in the book of Isaiah, there's seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit of God. His hair was his strength. That is showing you that in your life and my life, that, that the strength that you have comes from your Holy Spirit in your life. And the Bible says that the head of God is Christ, and the head of man is who? Christ. So we're to have him as our head. The seven locks pictured the Spirit of God in his life. That was his power. That was his strength. He couldn't cut his hair. He was not to touch dead people. Dead people in the Bible are picture of unsaved people. And it's a picture that if you want to have the power of God in your life, you can't have any real meaningful relationship with the unsaved world. It just will not work. He wasn't allowed to eat anything off a vine tree. No grapes, no raisins. He couldn't drink any wine. He had to abstain from all of those things. And if he did that, he could fulfill that vow of a Nazarite and God would give him the power to do what he wanted to do But that's all a picture of things in your life and my life. Now, let me show you where Samson got into problems. And this is what I call the Samson principle. And this is why, in the first aspect, many of us really don't have a reason to hold a grudge against somebody or to be angry with somebody, because you know why? Because we put ourselves in the place and set our own selves up for failure. Getting mad at somebody else and holding a grudge because you put yourself in a place that you could not win and it was setting yourself up for failure, that's not the other person's part. You're supposed to be smarter than the problem. So here's Samson. Bible says that Samson's a Nazarite now, and he knows, he knows basically the things he's got to stay away from. So Samson is going out bebopping with the boys looking for the girls. And the Bible says that he met a lion, by the way. And that lion, we know in the Bible, is a picture of the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He kills the lion. And the next day, he comes back and some bees now had got into the carcass of that lion and there was great honey in there. And you look at that and you think to myself, Samson got that honey. But when he got that honey... He touched the dead carcass of an animal, and now he broke the vow. Now, here's another good point. There wasn't nothing wrong with honey, but look where the devil put it. Now, let's go back and talk about him meeting that lion in the first place. This is the Samson principle. So, Samson's beat up and down the road, and he, he going out to hang out with the guys, hang out with the gals. And all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to take a shortcut. And the Bible tells you that he takes a shortcut through this guy's vineyard. Now, you know what a vineyard is, don't you? It's where they have grapes. Whoops. Now, Samson thought there was nothing wrong with taking a shortcut through the vineyard. God said, you can't have anything to do with that. And look who he met in the vineyard was the devil, the lion. And the lion in time was the fort of his downfall. My bottom line is this. He never, the lion would have never been an issue if he would have stayed out of the places he wasn't supposed to go. He had no business being in that vineyard. And God's people many times get an attitude about things. We get mad because somebody hurts us when the truth of the matter is that would have never been an issue if you would have not went and got into something you should have not gotten into. How can you blame, how can he blame the lion? How can he blame anything? The only one he can blame is himself because the lion in the Samson principle would have never been an issue if he have stayed out of the vineyard. I've seen guys that got beat up. I mean, beat up unmercifully. Christian guys. And I asked a guy years ago, I had a guy that came to church with two black eyes, you know, and he was, his arm was in a sling and he was all beat up. And I said, what happened to you, man? Were you in a car wreck? He said, no. He says, I got beat up. And I said, I got beat up, man. Were you mugged? And he said, no, Bob. He says, to tell you the truth, I went out with some old friends last Friday night and we got drinking and, you know, went south and they just ganged up on me and beat the fire out of me. Now, I have a hard time having sympathy with a guy like that. That's the Samson principle. You know what? You would never be in that shape if you would have stayed out of the vineyard. In other words, The issue of the lion and him actually breaking the vow would have never been an issue at all. But Samson always has to do it his way. Samson is somebody who's totally putting himself into the position where it's all about him. You know, in time, I'm going to teach you about suicide in the Bible. There's seven suicides in the Bible. Samson is one of them. And Samson's a picture of a child of God who gets to the point where his life gets so desperate that uh, he he actually becomes a suicide. And people make a mistake about people like Samson. And people make a mistake about the idea of suicide. I had a person die here uh, killed, a number of years ago, kill themselves, and somebody uh, come up to me and afterwards and said, what would make a person choose that? And I looked at them and I said, nobody chooses suicide. Nobody ever chooses to commit suicide. You don't understand the principle. When you get to the point in your life that you're ready to take your own life, it isn't the fact that you choose suicide. It's the fact that suicide chooses you. You think you just wake up some morning and said, oh, it's a bad day today, I'm going to kill myself. No. Suicide always comes in because of a number of bad choices a person has made in their lives, like Samson, that they actually get to the point in their life where there's no way out, there's nowhere else they can go, or they think, but because it's all about them, because it's always about their selfishness, always about what they want, always about what they want to do, they finally paint themselves into the corner like he did. He didn't care. He didn't care when his, when his other wife got burned up or her father-in-law got burned up. All he wanted to do was what was concerning him. He wants to go down and be with Delilah. He wants to go down and be the he-man. He wants to do this. It's all about him. The Bible says when he gave back his first wife to a friend of his, the Bible makes it very clear. And I love the way the Holy Spirit of God put it in there. The Bible says that he gave him back to his friend, which he used. He used people. That's the life of Samson. So you see, my point is this. When you put yourself into that kind of scenario and your world goes south and everything is upside down, who do you got to be mad at? Instead of directing your anger at somebody else, you ought to direct it at yourself. Instead of casting anger at other persons, take responsibility. Be angry at yourself for violating the biblical principles that put you in a no-win situation. Now, sometimes the second one. Sometimes people hurt us because they're mad at God. you got to be smarter than the problem. Forgiveness is not an option in your life and my life. You can't take things personal. When you get into the ministry and you're working with people, you're going to deal with people who don't want to hear the truth. And when you put out the truth, which once were your friends on Monday will be your enemies on Tuesday. It's just the way it goes. Light versus darkness. Paul said it himself. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. My answer to that is, you certainly will, because that's the way it works. So sometimes people hurt you because they're mad at God, and they take it out on you. Be smarter than the problem. Who are you working for? Don't take it personal. And then the third one's my favorite. And if there's anything that ever keeps me from taking things personal to the point where I get an attitude and a grudge uh, against somebody and keeps me from uh, not being forgiving at the drop of a hat, If there's anything in my life that keeps me between the white lines, it's this one. It's this one. Because at the end of the day, what has anybody ever done to you or me that we haven't done to God? When has anybody ever said about you or me or said to you or done to you that you and I in our life haven't done to Almighty God? and he yet he forgave us and, for, and, and for, forget what we did and forgave us of what we did, no holds barred. He just made a clean sweep of it. Those are the three issues that you're going to find in life. And when you understand this great principle found in chapter 2 and the aspect of being able to forgive and see how it's built around uh, these three things, and the greatest single probably doctrine in the Bible, which we're going to talk about today, you'll have a clear understanding of it. Now, in chapter 2, the aspect of being able to forgive is built around something that happened back in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. You'll remember, a man fell into sin by getting into a relationship with his father's wife. That's chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, that in dealing with people is about as complicated as it could ever hope to get. I can't even tell you how complicated that would be to try to work through in that kind of scenario with all the people you're dealing with, the people in the church, the church family, somebody's dad. I mean, if anything would definitely put a strain on Thanksgiving dinner, it would be something like this. (laughs) But now in chapter 2, this man who didn't want to get right and make it right, and that's what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and that's why... Paul told the church to deliver him uh, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, let God just, let the devil just work him over, that maybe he'll get right. Well, whatever happened, and the details are not given, but this man wants now to get right. And now he has come to them, and he wants to make it right, and he wants to come back to church. And so based on all of this drama, Paul now uses this situation to teach the church in Corinth the basic fundamental aspects of forgiveness. Paul never uses, never misses an opportunity. And you want to remember, real biblical counseling, real biblical dealing with people is basically helping people learn God's lesson through their adversity. That is the job of the church. And so based on all of this, Paul now uses the situation to help this church understand the basic fundamentals, how to do it. But at the same time, this is where it's a great book for us. He gives us a model by what he says and what he tells this church to do, That this is what we're supposed to do. Now, in this chapter, we find the greatest, as I said, single concept on our ability to learn and to forgive like Christ does and how to forget. And boy, If you're going to ever get to that point in your life where you deal with people, this is a lesson you're going to have to learn. This is an amazing chapter built around one of the hardest situations that you'll ever have to deal with in the ministry to bring this guy back, forgive him, forget what he did, love him, and then move on with it. Now, I want to begin reading here in chapter 2, and I want to pick it up in verse 5. He says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man this is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. Now that's the guy of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So that, contrawise, he ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch over sorrow. Wherefore, because what I just said, I beseech you that you should, would confirm your love toward him. For this to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For I forgave anything to whom I forgave it. For your sakes forgave it I in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, Father, help us today. Help us to glean from this. Lord, take the men and women in this church who in their hearts right now, and I don't even know who they are, don't want to know who they are, but the people in this church who want to get to that next level and to be uh, used effectively, who, who, who have the appetite to touch other people's lives with their lives, who have the basic skills to be able to take any scenario, no matter what it may be, and after learning the principles and learning the high tower concept, learning the, the Samson principle, learning the Solomon principle, learning the Hezekiah principle, all of those concepts and principles that you've built into your Word, Help them, Father, to to learn and understand and to put it all together. I pray as they put their notes in their Bible, as they do the work uh, and try to get all this material organized, that you'll help them. Lord, let them know that I'll help them. But Father, Father, it's something that that they could do all of that. They could put all their notes in the Bible. They could do everything that they're supposed to do. And if they fail to understand the single greatest character quality of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are told to be Christ-like, he lives inside us. Then, Lord, it's all for naught. Help us to learn and glean today on the great concept of forgiveness. And we'll thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we, say, we ask it. Amen. Now, the great word here is counterwise. Down there in verse 7. Where well, you once were, threw him out of the church, now you bring him back. And, boy, the list of things that he says there to do, we're not going to talk about that today. But we'll be a couple of weeks in this passage alone here before we even get to the rest of this chapter. But we have to get the grasp the basic understanding of, of learning how to forgive. And I want today look at one verse, and I want to teach you a great Bible doctrine today. Now let me give you another definition that you need to have. And most of you probably know this. Many of you maybe do not. I want to talk about, so you can grasp what I'm saying today, I want to talk to you about the word doctrine, what it simply means. The word doctrine means to teach or teaching. Bible doctrine is a specific teaching or definition about subjects that when we put it together and form the Bible as a teaching book. The word Bible means books. And when you understand that the Bible in its most fundamental form is a book about teaching principles, it's about issues of life, and yet when you look at the Bible, it looks complicated because in the Old Testament you have all of these people with all of their lives and it unfold one chapter after the other, but if you just get past that for a moment and just look at it in its basic concept of what the Bible is in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is nothing more than one story after another, then each one of those stories form at least one, many times, multiple concepts about life. And when you learn those principles out of those people's lives, he told you that in in 1 Corinthians. He says, the things that I wrote unto you in the Old Testament for your examples and your examples. You learn by their lives what to do and what not to do. Hence, the principle of Samson. We look at his life and see the things that he did. And many times we put ourselves into situations that we never should. And we wonder why. I have people all the time ask me, why did this happen to me? I mean, like, hello. When I was a young guy, my wife can verify this story. We didn't have a lot of money back then. We had just gotten married, and we were uh, uh, we were uh, we were pregnant with we were, not we were she was pregnant with with Kelly, and uh, you know you know back then to have a baby was one hundred and twenty five dollars. Well, wow, 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 wow. Well, it's probably 5000 today. It just goes to show you. Of course, the hospital we went to was just a cardboard box down here along the road someplace. It was pretty quick, no. But that's what it was. But too much, that was a lot of money. I mean, uh, I mean, back then, I made $600 a month before taxes. So, I mean, you know, just put it into equation. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, I, we were talking. I said, I remember when Hostess Twinkies were $0.12 cents a pack. You ever buy a pack of Hostess Twinkies? I haven't for over a year and a half now. (laughs) But they're up to like $1.60. I mean, it would be cheaper to buy a car to run on Twinkies instead of gas. I know that. But but incredible. But anyway, we didn't have any money. And, you know, being me, the the entrepreneur I always have been, you know, I I decided that there was a real value in uh, that I could make some side money. And so I went into uh, catching snapping turtles. And, you know, you don't think about this much, but uh, back there was a restaurant in town back there in Canton, Ohio, and their, their specialty was turtle soup. And turtle soup is probably, the, the, everybody loves turtle soup, but you got to have turtles to have turtle soup. You can't make turtle soup with chicken. So anyway, all these old boys used to go to Canada, and they would come back, they would do for one thing, they'd go up there and fish for two three days, and then they'd buy, they'd get 500, 600, 800 pounds of snapping turtles. And they put them in a big thing, and they'd bring them back, and they'd butcher them, and they'd sell them to this restaurant. Well, they all were died or too old, couldn't do it. And it was becoming a lost art. So I asked this guy, Bender's Restaurant, I asked this guy, I said, could uh, could you be interested in, in turtle meat? And he said, I'll take everything you can get. And he said, I'll give you $9 a pound for it. $9 a pound? Gas was 36 cents a gallon back then. $9 a pound. I see by your outfit that you are a turtle wrangler. That was me, man. I was in it. <laughs> so I got with these old guys that couldn't do it anymore. And I said, because sure, I was always kind of an outdoorsy guy anyhow and all those things. And I'm te- the story is the way I'm telling you is true. Most of you know this. These old guys, you know how they used to catch turtles? They used to go along and reach up under the bank. They called it noodling. They would reach up under the bank. And they would grab a, their their theory was that turtles always went in head first. Now, I'm not talking about little Lincoln Cuff from the Rocky movie. I'm talking about 85-pound snapping turtles. I'm talking about ones that it takes two guys to hold up. I'm talking to one whose heads are about that big and their necks are about that long. And you never find out how long their neck is till you get too close. And he shows you how far it is and how fast it can come out. There isn't any pit viper, any cobra, any black mamba on the earth that's faster than a snapping turtle when he wants to be. He can't walk fast, but he can stretch that neck out. He's got a neck that long on him. And so, you know what? I said, teach me how to do it. And so these guys said, well, and the other guy, you know, scratching his eye, he's already got two fingers missing off a hand. I'm thinking here. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm not sure that's how I want to handle this, you know. So anyway, he set me up with turtle traps. And I trapped, trap, 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 and we paid off the baby, and I still got some of the trap. It was the funnest time of my life. But anyway, I did. I'd go home there, and we'd get on a good night, uh, every t- even to this day, when I drive down the road and I see a river, or it's not a river, but I see a pond or a lake, I'm in my mind, I'm saying, that'd be a place to put a trap. I know where they live. I know how they like. I know their time of year. I learned everything about it. And these old guys taught me that... <clears throat> And, and that you, that this is how, but they did it. They, they said, you just reach them into the bank. And he says, they always go in head first. So you reach up there, you feel the rim in the shell, you grab their tail, you pull them up and throw them on the thing. Well, my luck, I'd get a dumb one that backed in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and I want to ask this guy, how come if that's true, you don't have two fingers on your hand there, you know? And this other guy over here has got the missing, is missing. One guy picked up a muskrat. Now, let me tell you something. You ever get bit by a muskrat? You're in trouble. And you know what? There's snakes up in them holes too. I mean, you're crazy. You can't see what you're doing. You're just going to be the man guy and reach down there and grab that. Oh, there's a rim of the turtle shell. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got his tail. Mm-hmm. And the turtle's saying, okay, boys, I sucked him in. Now you get him, and you get him. And they both get you from both sides. I wouldn't have any part of it. My point is this. When you stick your hand places that you can't see where it's at and you put your hand in a situation where there's things in there that can hurt you, you may get away with it the first time. You may get away with it the second time. But sooner or later, something's going to bite you. You put yourself into a relationship or a circumstance or a situation that the Bible says you shouldn't be in, sooner or later, you're going to get nailed. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And when you understand the doctrines of forgiveness, and you see how this thing works, doctrines are specific Bible teaches that are designed to keep you and me from getting ourselves in trouble, reaching for what we think is a snap and turtle and pulling out a big, big water moccasin. That's what it's designed for. Doctrine is to teach. To give you the right teaching. Last week we talked about uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 2 verse 7. He said that when you, I showed you, when you did the things that you did, what did God give you? He said he gave you sound wisdom. You know what sound wisdom is based on? It's based on what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.10. Sound wisdom is based on sound doctrine. When you get the teachings of the Bible in your life. Doctrine is important because it will always form the foundation of any Bible teaching that makes a ch- Christian or a church strong. And the mark of the Laodicean church today is the aspect that they have no doctrine. That's where it's at. All these denominational churches today, most people don't even know where they came from. And I'm not fighting anybody. You find a lot of guys who once started Baptist churches, they're taking Baptist off their name. You know why? Because when you take Baptist off your name, you go, in their mindset, interdenominational. You want to reach everybody. You know what you're saying when you got to reach that? I'm not under any delusion that Bob Alexander has the ability to reach everybody. But when you, when you get away from the doctrine, when you get into a situation where everything you believe is okay, everything I believe is okay, let's don't make issues out of these things. Let's just all get along. You lose your doctrine, you don't have anything. And that's what happens to them. There's no specific teachings about anything anymore. Everything is okay. Nothing is wrong. And the Bible says the first thing the Word of God is profitable for was doctrine. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and what? And is profitable. One, for doctrine you got to know what is right and what is wrong. you got to know what God expects and what he says. The idea that everybody in every church is going to believe the same thing is, I don't know where you get that from. It has never been true in history, and it will never be true in any place in, in time. When you get into the Bible, you'll find it is the doctrine of man. That's the teaching about man. You'll find it is a doctrine of eternal security. When you understand the doctrine of eternal security, then you'll never fear of losing your salvation. You know why there's a lot of churches and a lot of people who, who teach and preach and people who are afraid they can lose their salvation or believe they lose their salvation? I'll tell you one reason. The only reason, if you laid down a Bible in front of them and said, lay out for me the doctrine of eternal security, they couldn't do it. When you know the doctrine of eternal security, what the Bible teaches about it, you never have to worry about losing it. Never have to worry about losing it. There's a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's a doctrine of Christ. There's a doctrine of God. There's a doctrine of the rapture. There's a doctrine of the second coming, doctrine of the millennium. I gave you a while back, there's a doctrine of salvation. Now that's a case where many of these have other doctrines that go along with them. For do you understand the doctrine of salvation? There's 12 other doctrines you've got to figure out and understand that are found in the Bible. If you really want to understand what happened the day you got saved. I would think that would be important to most Christians. But it's not. You got the doctrine of propitiation. You got the doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. You got the doctrine of regeneration. You got the doctrine of expiation. You got all these different doctrines that, when you get them down, you know now what salvation is, and nobody ever can confuse you on it. But when churches take away doctrine, then they have nothing to stand on, and that's the problem. That's the problem. And with, with with that in mind. Here's the key doctrine on being able to understand forgiveness. And this will be the reason why you can't forgive. It's because you don't understand this basic doctrine. All right, look at verse 10 of where we're at here. Here's what he said. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgive it, for your sakes forgave I it, here it comes, in the person of Christ. Now I want to define that last phrase for you. Forgiving in the person of Christ. And today I want to teach you about the great missing doctrine in God's people's lives. It's simply the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. The doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 that Jesus Christ is the high priest of our profession. That profession is your profession of faith the day you got saved. Over there in Hebrews chapter uh, 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 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, it says this. Listen carefully. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, because what I just said, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, you know the process. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ went back to heaven, he sat down on the right hand of God. And the Bible now told you that he is our high priest. And on the sitting on the right hand of God, the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, that he makes intercession for us with the things that we go through in life. That's the job. Now, here we have an illustration of the story in the Old Testament that really helps us understand this doctrine. Now, in the Old Testament, God dealt with the nation of Israel, didn't he? And in the Old Testament, there was a priesthood connected with that Old Testament nation of Israel. That priesthood was a literal priesthood, a physical priesthood. You'll find it starts with Moses and Aaron. You know the story. Moses, you know, met with God, and, and he, God says, I got a job for you to do. Moses says, oh, I can't do it, you know, and I'm not good enough to do it. I'm not all these things. Him and God kind of beat around the bush. That's where that phrase comes from. And they're talking back and forth, and finally God says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you Aaron, and Aaron will be your spokesman. What happens right there is God now takes Moses and sets him up as the leader and he sets Aaron up as the priest. And from this point on, every son in the Old Testament who becomes either a priest or a high priest has to come from the physical body of Aaron. It's called the priestly line in the Old Testament. It's called the line of the priest. This line continues down through all of the Bible. It gets lost sometimes around 606 B.C. And this is part of the problem that the Jews have today. They don't understand and cannot find the genealogy of the true priesthood. So they're pretty much in the dark. They will find it here pretty quickly when the tribulation starts, but right now they can't. So in the Old Testament, you had a high priest. He had literal fleshly blood sons who became priests that assisted the high priest in the ministry to God's people within the nation of Israel. As I already told you, that tribe was part called the Levites. It comes from Jacob's son, Levi. And they're a separated tribe from all of the rest. I could take this morning, and there's a great study within that. That when they camped, and when they went wherever they went, they put the ark of the Uh, the Ark of the uh, Covenant and the tabernacle right in the middle. And then all the other camps camped around it in a big circle, kind of like a wagon train circling up. But in the middle is where the action was. In the middle is where the priestly tribe did what they did. And what did they do? You had one high priest. He had one job. That high priest had one job because he's a type of Jesus Christ. He has one job that every day, one time a year, on the day of atonement, he took the priest uh, the sacrifice. He took it beyond the veil into the holy of holies, and he laid down that sacrifice for the nation of Israel. The other priests couldn't do that. He was the only one that was allowed to do that because that high priest is a type of our high priest. And just as the Old Testament high priest went through the veil into the Holy of Holies and laid down the sacrifice for the nation of Israel, there was a day in history when Jesus Christ, my high priest, took the sacrifice for me and for you up through the Holy of Holies and laid it on the altar of God and then sat down on the right hand of God and is now my intercessing high priest. That's how it works. But he has sons who are priests. Those sons are not allowed to go in and do the things in the Holy of Holies, but those sons do the ministry of the high priest with all the other people. Here's a picture of you and me. This is what you and I do. Now, this literal priesthood in the Old Testament is a picture of the spiritual one today that you and I are part of. This one was literal. It came about by physical birth, being born into the family of Levi, therefore being a Levite. You and mine, it's, ours is a spiritual one. It comes about by a spiritual birth that puts you into the body of Christ that makes you a priest after the concept of Christ's eternal priesthood. You know, for you guys that are a little deeper in the Bible, you know there's two priesthoods recorded in the Old Testament for you? The One of them is the literal priesthood of Aaron, which we're talking about right now. And that is the one that had to be perpetuated by birth. And it's to Israel. It's the physical one. And then there's one recorded back there that is a spiritual priesthood. That's the priesthood of Melchizedek, found in Hebrews chapter 7, found in Genesis chapter 14. This is the one, the guy that says about his priesthood, there's no beginning and no end, no father and mother. What are they talking about? They're talking about that Melchizedek's priesthood represents Christ's priesthood. There is no father and mother. There's no bloodline through that priesthood. It's a spiritual priesthood. That's the priesthood that you and I became part of the day we got saved. And when you understand that, you'll find that the phrase after the order of Melchizedek is found seven times in your Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, these sons of the high priest, the literal ones, they helped do the work within the tabernacle. As I said earlier, the only thing they could not do was enter into the Holy of Holies and make the supreme sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That was a picture of Christ dying on the cross and making the atonement for our sins. Only the high priest could do that. And you know the process. The Holy of Holies was a place where it, where God's throne was on His planet. And the only one that could go in there was the high priest. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. When Christ died on the cross, he did away with the Levitical priesthood. There's no more human priesthood anymore because God now is not dealing with the nation of Israel. He's dealing with the spiritual body of Christ the church. Hence, there's no need for a, for a literal priesthood. So you find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 to 12, here's what he said. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus Christ, watch it. After he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. See how it works? There is the beginning of the spiritual priesthood, and the day you got saved, you not only became his son, you became part of that priesthood. And this is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Just as the Old Testament in the Old Testament, the sons of the high priest were consecrated uh, as priests to do his work. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, talking about you and me, ye also, as lively stones, are built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. There's your job, me and you. That's what we do. As the Old Testament priest. Uh, priest and they worked in there underneath the high priest and they worked in that tabernacle and they dealt with the people coming in and all of their issues, that's the job of you and for me. Their job wasn't to be judgmental. Their job wasn't to say, well, you can't come in here. Their job was simply this. The Bible says if you trespass God or you did this against God, you bring the right offering, the right sacrifice based on the book. We'll take it and God will forgive you. That's all you're to do today. The aspect of the doctrine of forgiveness is nothing more than you understanding that you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and you were to do the work down here as Christ sits on the right hand of God the Father. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Now, this is why you and I are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And though as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in, he says this, we pray you in Christ's stead. He said, We're praying to you instead of Christ. We're praying to you in Christ's stead. See that? Instead of Christ, because he knew he was a priest, and Christ is the high priest, and it's your job and my job to do the work of a priest and to help people get reconciled to God. That's why he said, in Christ's stead. You're the high priest. Christ is the high priest. You and I are part of that priesthood. And this is what Paul meant in chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, I'll forgive anybody, anytime, anything, anywhere. And then he says this, in the person of Christ. See, this is the power God gives you and I the day we get saved. You're a priest. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When you understand that Old Testament priesthood, Michael back there when he did the uh, chalk talk wrote, d- drawed out the seven things that are in that tabernacle. And I don't know if you've ever studied that. One of the greatest studies in the world is to take those seven things that are in that tabernacle that the priest worked with and see how they figure into your own life. You have the brazen altar. That's where the sacrifice was burnt. That's a picture of Christ dying on the cross. You have the laver of water. That's the picture of them washing their feet when they go in and out. It's a picture of your daily confession to stay clean with God. That tabernacle... Had almost the most beautiful overlaid gold objects in it you could ever see. Seven of them. And yet it had a dirt floor. There was no carpet, there was no boards, and every time that priest walked in and out, his feet got dirty. And it, he every time he came out, he washed his feet off that labor of water. Every time he went back in, he washed his feet off that labor of water. You know why? Because that's a picture of you and I in the ministry. The water's a type of the Word of God and it, the feet is our walk and to do the work of God, we've got to continually keep our feet clean with the Word of God. You go in there, and I don't know if you know this or not, but that tabernacle was completely over, 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 overcast with animal skins. And animal skins are the most impenetrable uh, thing you could find. No light can get through. And there were badger skins all over it. And when you walked in there from the outside, it was absolutely pitch black in there. The only light in there was a candlestick that had seven candles on it, and that was all the light. No light switch, no lights like this. And you know as well as I do, you all went to the movie theater at some point or other, and probably most of you are going today to see Above Valor. But anyway... You know it's true. When you walk in there and you walk into a movie theater, you got to stop for a minute. My favorite thing is the movie theater is not watch the movie. It's to watch the people trip up the steps with their popcorn because they didn't wait till their eyes adjusted to the light. They think they can do it. They think they're a bionic person, and they're not. And the funniest thing, I sit on the aisle. i got more popcorn that way free than anything else in the world. They stop up that thing, and the first thing that happens, they start coming up there and why? They didn't see the step. Why didn't they see the step? Because they didn't stop and say, wow. Coming out from the outside into the inside, I better just hold up for a minute here so I can see what's going on. They don't do that. But that's what happens when you get saved. You know what you do? You come out of that, you come out of that you come out of that glittery light of the world, and they walked into that tabernacle, the priest had to stop for a minute. And he had to wait for a minute. He had to let his eyes get adjusted because he was coming from the light of the world to the light of God. And you just don't walk from the light of the world to the light of God and then just move on in life. We call it discipleship. We call it Bible basics. We call it giving yourself time to get adjusted from the light of the world to the light of God. And all that was in that tabernacle was seven candlesticks. They represent the Holy Spirit of God. On this side was a table. A table represented the fellowship. And there was 12 loaves of bread on that table. Baked fresh every morning. Bread's a type of the word of God. But it was laid out. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Whoever did that, whoever told Moses to do that, told him two-pronged thing. He says, first of all, put 12 of them because it's the nation of Israel. But put them like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Because I'm going to give you a book someday. It's going to have 66 books in it. And all the light that that priest had to do the work in there listen to me, was the light off of the candlestick that represents the Holy Spirit of God. The light from the world could never get in. And if you want a successful ministry, whatever you do, you got to make sure you keep the light from the world getting in and just operate by the light of the Holy Spirit of God. And they were around that table and they did that bread. But you know what? If here's the candlestick and here's the table, they had to come around this way to work with the bread because that they did it this way they couldn't see what they were doing because every time you get between the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God you're going to lose the life that God has for you I'm telling you the priesthood of the believer was one of the greatest single fundamental doctrines of the Bible you are to understand that you now and a part of the priesthood of the believer, he's my high priest. You and I are to do the work in this tabernacle, but there is a way that work has to be done. It's incredible. It's incredible. One time Christ sent out the 12 of disciples. And this is what he told him in Matthew chapter 18. And I struggled with this in this next verse in John 20 for a long time, though I grew up a little bit and understood it. He said one time, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that always confused me. I thought God was the only one that had the power to do that. Then he said in John chapter 20, verse 23, he even got more explicit and he said this. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Wow. That's an incredible verse. And then one day I began to understand the the power, the binding and the loosing that God gives you and I as a priest. When you win a person to Christ, you have the power and the authority as a priest of God through the word of God to tell that person his sins have been forgiven. That's a pretty good deal. When you deal with a person and they won't get saved and they won't do what's right, then you as a priest after the order of Melchizedek by a spiritual birth and the priesthood of Christ, you have the power and the authority to tell that person their sin is still on them and there's a judgment day coming. God will use you and me to to expedite somebody's problems in their life just like he used the priest under the high priest in the Old Testament to deal with the people's problems when they came to the tabernacle. You are a priest, therefore, you have the ability in the person of Christ. You have the ability in Christ's stead. You see how that works? And when you understand this great principle, you have the fundamental doctrine for forgiveness in your life. Now, if we're saved here this morning, and we probably are, based on what I just gave you, we're cooked. We're cooked. Because your ability or inability to forgive will be either your greatest building asset in your life or your greatest disastrous asset in your life. Come on now. Now, based on what we have, what? You're saved. I'm saved. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're part of Christ's priesthood. You're part of his body. You're in his son's ministry. And you and me, like the Old Testament model, we're doing the work down here for him. And you have the power to remit and retain people's sins by the book that God has given you through the authority of being part of that priesthood. And yet, we ourselves won't forgive people in our lives, but we think that we can do it and somebody else is in ministry? I'm telling you, the greatest single principle that one of the greatest single principles you learn about dealing with people or training people is simply this. It's an illusion. If you're not willing to do it in your own life first, it's an illusion that you'll do it later. It has to be done in your life first. You have to recognize and understand the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek in Christ's priesthood. He's the high priest. You were left down here to magistrate that priesthood in the lives of people to bring them forgiveness. When you understand this great doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, you realize you're God's priest in this old planet. Your job is to expedite the spiritual sacrifices in people's lives just like they did working in the tabernacle. All power and authority has been given unto you. You got the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. There's your seven candlesticks. You got the Word of God. There's the showbread. You got the fellowship. There's the table. You got the local New Testament church. You got everything that you need except the right attitude about it. And as the Son of God of the high priest, you and I should Emulate the number one character quality of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ability to forgive and to forget. And it's an illusion to think that you can work with people and you can teach them how to forgive and forget when you and I cannot do it ourselves. Look at verse 9. If you're not quite dead yet, this one will kill you. You will be shortly. To this end... Verse 9, to this end so also did I write. What end? About forgiving this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This man's, the whole chapter wraps itself around this. This church now throwing him out of the church. This church now bringing him back and what the church is told to do. To this end also did I write. That I might know, here it comes, the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. The proof of you and me and our obedience in our salvation, and our priesthood, is simply one thing, ladies and gentlemen, your ability to forgive others based on your understanding that now you are part of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's the high priest and the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Realizing the three things I told you earlier on that most people get into problems they get into simply because of the fact that they either get in the wrong place they shouldn't be, they're catching snapping turtles under the bridge, under the bank, Either that or the fact that uh, somebody's mad at God and they're taking it out on you or the fact that you just absolve it in the fact that, well, I can, I should, I get, why should I get upset with that guy? How many times have I done the same thing to my Heavenly Father? Understanding the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. In the Old Testament, the sons of the priest had very strict qualifications. And here again, we see the model. We've laid out the model of the priesthood. Now let me show you the model of the priest. We now know that in the Old Testament there was a tabernacle. That's a picture of our ministry. There was a high priest who went into the Holy Holies. That's Jesus Christ. And there's priests who do the office of that for the high priest. That's you and me. We know that now. We see now the two priesthood: the Old Testament literal one and the one after the order of Melchizedek. All right. Now let's look at the priest themselves very quickly and see their strict qualifications. First of all, Exodus chapter 28 says that it has to come only from Aaron's seed. You see, there's a difference in itself. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says, he, talking about Jesus, he came, he came into His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on His name. Now that's you and me. Watch how it happens. Which were born. Here it comes. Not of blood. That's Aaron's priesthood, you see. Wasn't born of blood. Nor the will of flesh. That's Aaron's priesthood nor the will of man. That's the old physical priesthood. Watch this one. Which were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's the spiritual one. It's the spiritual one. You'll go back there in Exodus chapter 28, verse 40. You'll find that the high priest, the high priest now, he had a special suit of clothes that he wore. It's elaborate. Every piece of that garment means something. We don't have time to get into it today. But he wore a special suit of clothes. Oh, but you'll also find out in that passage that his sons wore the exact same clothes. You know why? Because in a, long and a short of it, those clothes the high priest wore were a picture of Christ's glory and all that Christ has. And God's sons wear the same glory and the same things that the high priest does. It's a picture of getting Christ's righteousness. It's an incredible study. One we will never do justice with today. But just so you grasp the concept of it, there were three fundamental aspects that the priest's job had to do in Exodus chapter 28. Don't know if you ever saw it before. Three fundamental aspects of the priest's job. In verse 12, he was to carry the burden of the people. Oh, that's a good one. That's the job of you and me. You that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. That's what Paul was trying to get across to them over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hey, everybody makes dumb choices. Just because, I mean, you don't think good people make bad choices? They do all the time. Yeah, I know there's bad people out there that continually make bad choices because they're bad people. But in many, many cases, if not in most of the cases, that's not true. Good people just do dumb things because we're dumb. I don't know what else to tell you. And the aspect of the priesthood was to restore that. You're going to find that there's two kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There's a sin offering and a trespass offering. The sin offerings were sins against God. The trespass offerings were sin against man. And they brought him into that tabernacle. The priest dealt with it. He told him what the book said to do. They brought the appropriate sacrifice. It was taken care of. In your life, in my life, dealing with people, we're going to deal with the same things. We're going to deal with people who sin against God, and we're going to deal with people who sin against other people. And you deal with it the same way as a priest. You take the Word of God, you lay out the principles, you show them what the Bible says, and then you expedite that concept where they deal with their problem. That's how it works. It's not hard once you see it, but you have to understand this great concept. So the three fundamental aspects of the priest's job, first, verse 12, was to carry the burden of the people. The second one in verse 29 was to guard his own heart with God. See, he had some things that he had to do to stay that thing that God would continue to use him. And the third thing in verse 31 through 36, or 35 and 36, he had to guard his mind. Just exactly what the Bible says you and I have to do. I'll tell you something else. In Exodus chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, there's an th- interesting thing. Those chapters deal with the consecration of the priest. And this is what I harp on all the time. I, I, I you know, I, I just beat this into you guys. I, I, I just, I, I ride you on this. I just keep it before you all the time. I ride this thing in you like a rented scooter, man. I just keep putting it into your life. Keep putting those principles in there. You got to realize that there has to be a consecration of the priest. He just couldn't do whatever he wanted to do. He was separate from everybody else. He had certain things that he had to do. So you find there in chapter 28 that that when they had the consecration of the priest, they anointed him with oil. Picture the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Then the Bible says they took the blood of a sacrifice and they put it on the tip of his right ear, the tip of his thumb, and the tip of his big right toe. And that shows you in picture in form for you and for me the consecration of the believer from head to toe consecrated on what goes in your ears, consecrated what you do with your hands and consecrated under the blood where you go with your feet. That's the consecration of the believer. What you hear, what you do and where you go. His work as a priest under the high priest was to use the seven pieces of furniture within the tabernacle to do the work. The act of forgiveness, the sacrifice for the people of God. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly Furnished. furnished. Those furnishings are what you ought to have in your life to do the office of the priest. Every one of them means something. And your main function as a job, as a priest, is to emulate the greatest single character quality of Christ. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's just that simple. During this time, the priest and the tabernacle, they had no permanent home. Yes. They were homeless. And you see, That's the problem with some of you today. The reason why you don't see the value of the homeless ministry or restart, and and very frankly, some of you think it's stupid. The reason why you feel that way and think that way is simply because you've never realized as a child of God, you're homeless too. This whole world's not your home. I pulled over down there last week and was talking to an old boy down there and gave him some food and was witnessing to him and talking to him. And he says, he says, he says, well, you don't know what it's like to be homeless. And I said, yes, I do. He says, how could you know that? And I said, because, pal, this old world's not my home. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I'm a pilgrim in this strange land. I know exactly what you feel inside. I know exactly the anxiety you have. I know exactly the the helplessness you feel. Because I'm in a world that is against everything I love and believe. I'm in a world that wants to do everything to hurt everybody around me including my family and my friends. This old world is no friend to me and this old world is not my home. And the quicker you figure out you're homeless and you're just a pilgrim passing through this thing, the better off you'll be in understanding. your job within that tabernacle. We're homeless. You just ain't never figured it out. Your home is this world with all its trinkets. And the concept of the priesthood of the believer is the greatest single thing. You know, I love our kids today and I enjoy our kids. And I want all of you kids to grow up working with me in ministry. But I watch something with you kids, and this is not a criticism, it's very cute. But what I see in you, you're a great, you know, the Bible says out of the mouths of babes, you know, my word has been perfected. We don't have one of these things at uh, Jason's Deli, but remember when we used to go to uh, the pizza place and then we went to uh, a fun house and then we went to uh, uh, the place we go now, it's got the good catfish, you know. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And, uh, but there's always a second room with all these game things, and I, I always take a whole bunch of dollar bills because I, I see kids you're not getting to play because they don't. I always give them a dollar. I, I just blew that. I'll have to have two hundred dollars when I go to playing ball this year. All the kids, not the thing to say on Kids Sunday. That was stupid, Bob. <laughs> I used to take money with me to go to those places. Don't do it anymore. <clears throat> but I love to watch them. Because it costs 50 cents, two tokens, to play one of those games. And the favorite game I like to watch is the one that's got the big lever and you control it and it drops down and closes on something and picks it up and then brings it over to the deal and drops it. And I watch these kids put in thousands of dollars. <laughs> Both of my grandkids have spent all of their college money and i watch them and it's just it, you know and the games are rigged you got to be a engineering genius to figure it out and you know and they go over there and, and they they'll, they'll put money in they'll come down they'll drop it they'll pick it up and 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 it it'll fall right before it goes down they'll give that put more money in come back around again try something else they want to they put things in there to really bait you watches they don't work but they look great radios, CD players. You're never going to pick one of them up. But that's how they get you in there. And those kids just kept putting their quarters in. And then I watched it. My own kids my little, my ma- uh, not Macy, but uh, Kenzie was great at it. And she got this thing, and she got whatever it was, a doll or something, and she brought it over, and it fell down in a chute and came out the thing. She was the happiest person in the world. And I thought to myself at that point, boy, if that is not a picture of most of God's people today. She spent... $4.58, and 45 minutes of her time, they'll get something that she could have went to Toys of Us and bought a box of them for a buck. <laughs> but that's what we do. We put so much energy and time and money in the things that absolutely have no value. The great doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, which now you have been introduced to, is the single fundamental doctrine of the Bible that forms the foundation and the platform by which you learn to forgive and to forget. How could ever heaven ever reconcile? How could heaven ever be reconciled with you and me as a priest and a believer who does not follow? the character qualities of the high priest. How can heaven ever be reconciled with a priesthood that will not execute the only thing the priesthood was in place for, and that was to bring about forgiveness in every circumstance and situation? And you'll never do it in other people's lives, ladies and gentlemen, till you first learn to do it in your own. Because bottom line being good at what you do with people or the Bible or anything else simply comes back. And I tell married couples all this all the time. I tell them that your marriage together will be only as strong as your individual relationship with Christ will be individually. And I say that to you as an individual Christian. Your ministry and all that you do will only be as valuable and as worth anything as the value that you put on it in your own personal relationship with Christ. And it has to be First and foremost, understanding the doctrine of the priesthood. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Our job in this tabernacle of life is to execute the functions of a priest. And God has given us the authority and the power through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God inside us to carry it out. And yes, we are homeless. This old world is not our home. You should look at life and everything in it from a totally different perspective after today. But you won't because I still see you over there at that machine putting in quarters, buying stuff that don't mean anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.